Since this episode was recorded, uh, there's been extra tragedies in Liz's life. Deep love from me and everyone involved or affiliated with stand-up tragedy to her at this time of bereavement. Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. I'm generally your host. I started Stand Up Tragedy, that's why I end up being its host. But these days I like to have other people's voices sometimes hosting the show. And in this episode, it's two voices. It's me and... Liz! For her last one of the three shows that she's doing. Yeah, so basically Harv had this idea that I should do a farewell to stand-up tragedy because I am going away to uh, focus on my day job, which is sad and tragic in and of itself, but hopefully for the best. And I'm leaving stand-up tragedy, of course, in Dave's very, very capable hands. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes. But Harv said, why don't you record a your favorite performer's podcast? Well, that resulted in three podcasts because I had a massive spreadsheet and it was like picking between your, I think I've said this, your favorite children. Some of these are my good friends some of these are just amazing performances that i just can't pick between so it's ended up being three but this is the last of them this is the last of them you can listen back to the other ones uh, they'll have been out probably quite some time ago because there's probably been a gap i'll find out when i'm editing but what i know for now is that there's this is quite some time in the future from when we're recording it so we're recording this back in uh september, september. And this will probably be going out, maybe, I don't know, we're on a two-weekly schedule, so we'll be getting three when we do Tragic Autumn, so this could even be in 2016 that this goes out. We're we're talking to the future. We are talking to the future. Send send me my hover car. (laughs) So, that is what we're doing today. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show and a podcast where people stand up and they do tragedy we like to make people cry until they laugh and laugh until they cry and create a safe space to talk about unsafe things which means that you should expect unsafe things which means sad things uh, traumatic things stuff that doesn't get talked about that much in society so if you're feeling fragile today maybe don't listen to this episode but (laughs) if you aren't feeling fragile you will probably enjoy it and so keep listening this one is the one that it was supposed to be i think which was favorite performers but i found that impossible so there's also a best of each season and a best of genres but there was never a supposed it was an open (laughs) open. open-ended whatever you wanted to do well so so, for today we're doing your favorite performers which is a bold statement it's a bold statement so these are they're amazing performances but they are performers who just everything they do and all of their solo shows that i've seen just they move me to tears, they move me to laughs, they've made me think about things. They're people that I love dearly, and um, they're almost all spoken word artists. In fact, they are actually all all spoken word artists. A couple of them cross genres, but maybe that says something to where my, my heart is these days and where stand-up tragedy's heart is, particularly when we're in Edinburgh. But these, these people are exceptional. Go see everything they do. Um, <laughs> so my first pick... I'm going to go in reverse order here, Dave, Okay. because I realized I wanted to do it differently. He is an amazing guy, and uh, he hosted a show for us in Edinburgh where he was Dave, but he wasn't Dave because he was himself, (laughs) but he is an exceptional poet, just one of my favorite poets. He bleeds words, he feels words, like he shapes words into weird and wonderful and elaborate ways. The exceptional 
Keith Jarrett. What an introduction. Um, yeah, um, yeah. The tragic thing is, um, I've got one of them names. It's a famous name, and um, and uh, I've been added on Facebook, um, which is why I changed it to Keith J because I've had too many people add me on Facebook and say, "Oh, you're black." And I, the, the first time that happened, I thought, that's a bit of an odd thing to say. Then I realised that um, actually there's a famous jazz pianist called Keith Jarrett. And um, some curious minds will, will think that I'm, I'm probably named after um, Keith Jarrett, the jazz pianist, and I wasn't. Um, and some people who know my dad but don't know me will think that I was named after my dad. And I wasn't. This is the true story of how I got my name for my birthday. They rescued my name from a bargain bucket in Barking, too cheap to afford a new one. Dog-eared and ragged, they wiped it down best they could, said I was an old soul anyway. I would have been a Lindsay, Russell, Daniel, or a Curtis, but they gave me this one to suckle on, so I chewed, bit, kicked, and rattled it till it tinkled out jazz piano lullabies on my baby stool. I carried it to school on my shoulders. My friends like to call it Jarrett the Parrot, Keith the Chief, and Mellow Man. It was the way its yellow eyes shut on top of class desks. I guess it was because it lacked focus. Older now, it became a pet I couldn't bear to hear barked out on buses. I tried to drown it in the River Thames. It still skulked behind like a bad wind. My name was too dirty, too old, too much like my father. At home, I was LK, Daniel, Junior, D, and anything but my name. But my name got bigger and grew claws, stretched to five foot eight inches tall and became solidly built. It swallowed me up and <coughs> belched proudly, leaving me where I still remain, trapped inside. My name is now writing poetry, last I heard. Tells tall tales about its origins. Far from the land of its adopted parents. Far from the bric-a-brac stalls lining East London streets. It can be found tracing its roots back to some old Celtic village where it once meant something. Thank you. Um, I'm going to kind of follow on from the sex because we all like sex, apparently. Um, and... Um, and I really liked Faye's um, um, like, kind of message to her, her queer teenage self. And, and if I was going to give a message to any queer teenager, I'd say that, um, judging from Grindr, um, <laughs> gay people can be wankers too. <laughs> um, random profile, okay? Random profile. No time wasters. No fats. No femmes. And no offence, I have black friends, but sexually they do nothing for me. Just the way it is. I'm not racially prejudiced, but no Asians either. No one under eight inches. No size queens, please. No pic collectors. No one who, isn't, who doesn't send at least 20 pictures, but no dicks. No arseholes. No time wasters. No stupid questions like, what are you into? Read my list. No queens, no queers, no twinks, no bears, no gym bunnies, no baggage. No strings to tie it down with. No kink. No whips. No kissing. Definitely no kissing. No bad breath, bad hygiene, bad attitude. No rude people. I am not afraid to tell you where to get off. 
No under 25s. No over 21s. No lying about your age. No lying about your weight. You are a big fat liar. Yes, you know who you are. I've blocked you already. No ping pong emails. No replies to hi. Say something interesting. No average. I don't do average. No marriage proposals from Nigeria. No inferior people. No total subs. No total tops. No verse. And even worse if you say you're one thing and turn out to be another. No undercover closet cases. No married. No attached. No mismatching eyebrows. No piercings. No tats. No one who hasn't seen a razor in the last week. No one who hasn't seen the inside of a gym in the last day. No one too thin, too short, too dim. No one who can't hold a decent conversation. No one who talks too much. This is a cruising site. No low lives. No unrealistically high expectations. I'm not a model. I'm not an oil painting. And I'm not an unreasonable boy. In fact, I'm not a boy at all, especially spelt with an I. Why? Oh yeah, no chavvy greetings like what's up or hey mister. My list could go on but I don't want to sound picky. And if you've taken the trouble to read this far, then well done for being one of the very few literate people on here. This site has been going downhill for years. I don't even know why I'm bothering. You're probably a time waster anyway. Thank you. So this one is a bit tragic because I I wrote it when I was a bit sad up in Edinburgh. Um, (laughs) as you do Um, and it was, yeah after I've protested outside embassies after I've bought badges and signed petitions and wondered whether my details will land in guilty hands after I've been elbow bumped by bulky banners and bellowed mantras shame on you, shame on you, shame on you after I have read and seen red and been ambiguous after I've drained myself of pride and piss in a discreet corner over a drain and after I've been that drain and after I've refilled at the pub and after I've spilled my stories on merry festival stages and after I've once again pulled my tongue from out of the custody of its thirsty mouth and after I've drunk and after I've been promised living water and hellfire by the same preachers and shame on you has been become my personal mantra praying on my lonely and then after I thought that if Jesus couldn't save me, maybe feminism would. And after I burnt my bra quietly with my chest still inside, and after the smoke inhalation, and after I've singed everything, and I can no longer pull myself out by my shortened curlies, and after I can no longer pull myself out of the protest march, or pull myself out of the bed on a morning, and after, and after... And after R. Kelly, after believing I can fly and learning I damn well can't, and after believing in myself when I could no longer believe in truth, and then believing in the divination of tongues locked against each other during one night stands, and after breaking my bed during an adventurous handstand, and after trying unsuccessfully to watch Breaking Bad and then Breaking Bread in restaurants with old university friends where the only flowing conversation is, do you remember when you got drunk and vomited all over my room? And after vomiting in that room and promising never to drink, drink again, and after drinking again and not from vomiting, and after vomiting again but not from drinking, and after returning to the broken bed, and after the second coming, and after erasing all religious references and downplaying all cultural contexts and negating all 
the adverse effects of history to justify genocide. And after I've been muttering, history keeps repeating. History keeps repeating. Until my tongue is dry. And after I've drunk again. And after I've become a full-blown slacktivist and deliberately avoided a protest because I have no voice left to shout with. And consequently, after I've buried my tongue somewhere else instead. And after I absentmindedly wrote you a poem after that. And after I burnt that poem and felt the hairs on my chest singe one more time and after shame on you shame on you has worked its one size fits all magic on my consciousness I have forgotten to roll back the progress of time and release the pressure on my head which is always so angry always gets rubbed up the wrong way by the well meaning because after I've bartered some of my anger for vulgarity and some of my sadness for sarcasm and I still feel short changed and after I mean before I mean, during these mean days when I have to endure the weight of a double-decker bus on my eyelids every single time I leave my bed, and before the violence, and before the violins start playing, and before the drumbeat begins to really kick in, and the euphoric crowd high on ketamine, MDMA, methadrone, alcohol, and life jump up in unison with one hand in the air, and before my cry is drowned out by the stomp, and you forget I was even here, I just wanted to say, never look down. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, I think... Wait, so I'm going to leave you with this, um, which is to any poets that might be remaining here. You've been writing poetry again. I can spot that leaky pen on your lip from miles away and your tongue with the stale taste of metaphor still on, which you've tried to brush away. The verses linger still in your kiss. You've been writing poetry again. Don't worry, I can tell it's that fingertip smell, that keyboard stain, the pinky poised above delete pushing out your veins. Why this fucking vein obsession? Lines layered with double meanings and painstakingly revised which you pat into shape and you stanzadize. If words are your food, why do you play with them? Why do you use them as tools to confuse and condense? You've been writing that intense poetry again. There's a rhyme in your mind and a line in your eyes that I can trace. I can see it in your face because there's a rhythm that you're tapping and it's just not mine. You've been writing poetry again. Yeah, I know you by now. I can hear it in your addiction, your dirty addiction to watching couplets form. Your smile as a simile emerges, your urges to splurge your emotions onto innocent sheets. You've been at it again, I lie. It's that telltale tick of the head as puns pull up seats on the screen, the debris of undeveloped phrases onto pages as you spit, feeling into words and shuffle meaning into verse. You've been injecting rhythm into those lines. You're just a meter away from lunacy. And it's pathetic, the way you keep dressing things up in imagery and symbolism. Because let's face it, you're only inventing new rhymes and new ways to say the same old things. Like you're in love, or like you're scared, like you're angry, like you're confused. Because you don't understand life's rules, so you use poetry as a ruse to redraft it into metrical form. And it isn't normal. It isn't normal at all. Yes, you've been writing on the walls instead of fighting in wars. Your big gripping hands should be handling concrete grit. You should grit your teeth and grin and bear shit. You should be more functional. You should be more like your brother. You should be less of a dreamer. You should be clean and more productive. So shut down your PC junk. Pack up your dictionaries. Close your books. Unsquint your eyes and look. Look out at the world. Go on. 
Brave the cold daylight of the outside without the cloak of illusion, without the joke of your delusion or imagery, without the hope of a simile or metaphor, without the seasoning of rhymes to waste your time. You should be ashamed of doing the strange things to language that you do while the earth still turns, while cities riot and burn. You should learn that life isn't a blank page for you to scrawl your doo-doo ideas on because there are too many wrongs to write. So, good night. Keith Jarrett, everybody. Someone who I'm glad has been writing poetry again. That was Keith. And he's one of, I mean, I think a few of the people you've picked today are people who we've had iPad guest host for me this year. I had them guest host for me because I love what they do pretty much as much as you do. And um, we don't claim any kind of uh, non-bias in, no. in Stand Up Tragedy. We've produced this show. We love the performers. That's what happens when you get people on stage and they do really sincere, beautiful things. And then you have a drink with them afterwards and get to know them. Keith is amazing. I love what he does so much I love how modest and quiet he is and then when he clicks yeah. into a poem he is just the most uh, compelling person there you go gush from Liz to begin and then a gush from me to end so who's next in this uh, gush fest gush fest yeah. actually that's the proper that's way to introduce him gush fest gush is, fest <laughs> does make sense if, you, if you're going to introduce who I think you're going to I am I am one of the things that he's most amazing at other than just being in a, a a lovely dynamic person who's always around is um he manages to bridge that gap so well between page and performance poetry uh he's a classicist and he manages to both recite poems that you would never have heard of with just an amazing uh, quality that keeps you spellbound whether or not you engage with classical poetry but he also does his own poetry and it is epically wonderful and amazing and this year in Edinburgh he did a lovely show about about the movements but this is the the wonderful the exceptional James Mackay so so this is this is real this is this is a real Victorian children's story from a real Victorian children's book called the Anyhow Stories by Lucy Clifford a bestseller back in 1885 if you read this to a child nowadays the social would be on their way as I think you're going to see. It's not the whole thing. I'm just going to top and tail it. I'm going to give you the setup, then we're going to cut to the chase at the end. This is absolutely real, and you can forget the fucking Gruffalo. <laughs> now, it's called The New Mother. That's important. Now, the mother and blue eyes and the turkey and the baby all lived in a lonely cottage on the edge of the forest. The tall fir trees were so close that their big black arms stretched over the little thatched roof and when the moon shone upon them, their tangled shadows were all over the whitewashed walls. It was a long way to the village and the mother had not time to go off and herself to see if there was a letter at the post office from the dear father and so very often in the afternoon she used to send the two children. When they came back tired with the long walk, there would be the mother waiting and watching for them and the tea would be ready and the baby crowing with delight and if any chance there was a letter from the sea, then they were happy indeed. Dear children, the mother said one afternoon late in the autumn, 
It is very chilly for you to go to the village, but you must walk quickly, and who knows but what you may bring back a letter saying that the dear father is already on his way to England. Don't be long, the mother said. Go the nearest way, and don't look at any strangers you meet. No, mother, they answered. And then she kissed them and called them dear good children, and they joyfully started on their way. The postmistress was very busy weighing out half pounds of coffee, and when she had time to attend to the children, she only just said, no letter for you today, and went on with what she was doing. They had left the village and walked some of the way back, and then, just before they reached the bridge, they noticed, resting against a pile of stones by the wayside, a strange, dark figure. The girl seemed to be tall and was about 15 years old, She was dressed in very ragged clothes. Her hair was coal black and hung down, uncombed and unfastened, just anyhow. She sat watching the children approach, but did not move or stir until they were within a yard of her. Then she wiped her eyes, just as if she'd been crying bitterly, and looked up. The children stood still in front of her for a moment, staring at her and wondering what they ought to do. "'Are you crying?' they asked shyly. To their surprise, she said in a most cheerful voice, Oh dear, no, quite the contrary. Are you? (laughs) Then the turkey, who had an inquiring mind, put a good, straightforward question. What are you sitting on? she asked. On a pear drum, the girl answered, still speaking in a most cheerful voice at which the children wondered, for she looked very cold and uncomfortable. What is a pear drum, they asked. I am surprised at your not knowing, the girl answered. Most people in good society have one. And then she pulled it out and showed it to them. It was a curious instrument. But the strange thing about the pear drum was not the music it made, but a little square box attached to one side. The box had a little flat lid that appeared to open by a spring. That was all the children could make out at first. And what have you got in there, they asked eagerly. In here, I have a little man dressed as a peasant and wearing a wide slouch hat with a large feather and a little woman to match dressed in a red petticoat and a white handkerchief pinned across her bosom. I put them on the lid of the box and when I play, they dance most beautifully. Oh, let us see, do let us see, the children cried both at once. Then the village girl looked at them doubtfully. Let you see, she said slowly. Well, I am not sure that I can. Tell me, are you good? Yes, yes, they answered eagerly. We are very good. Then it's quite impossible, she answered. I only show them to naughty children. Good day. Oh, but we will be naughty, they said in despair. I'm afraid you couldn't, she answered, shaking her head. It requires a great deal of skill, (laughs) especially to be naughty well. Good day. Perhaps I shall see you in the village tomorrow. The turkey thought for a few minutes in silence. I think I can be naughty if I try, she said. I'll try tonight. And then poor Blue Eyes burst into tears. Oh, don't be naughty without me, she cried. It will be so unkind of you. You know I want to see the little man and woman just as much as you do. You are very, very unkind. And she sobbed bitterly. And so, quarrelling and crying, they reached their home. Now, when their mother saw them, she was greatly astonished. And fearing they were hurt, ran to meet them. 
Oh, my children. Oh, my dear, dear children, she said. What is the matter? Oh, mother, sobbed Blue Eyes. Oh, dear mother, I do so want to be naughty. My dear child, the mother exclaimed. Yes, mother, sobbed the turkey even more bitterly. I do so want to be very, very naughty. I should be very angry if you were naughty. For then I should know you did not love me, the mother said. And what should you do? asked Blue Eyes. I cannot tell. I should try to make you better. But if you couldn't, what if we were very, very, very naughty and wouldn't be good? What then? Then, said the mother sadly, and while she spoke, her eyes filled with tears and a sob almost choked her. Then, she said, I should have to go away and leave you and to send home a new mother with glass eyes and a wooden tail. <laughs> you couldn't, they cried. <laughs> yes, I could, she answered in a low voice, but it would make me very unhappy, and I will never do it unless you are very, very naughty, and I am obliged. <laughs> I think you know which way the tour is going to go now. I think we're going to cut now to the terrifying final scene. You'll know. Suddenly, while they were sitting by the fire, they heard a sound as of something heavy being dragged along the ground outside, and then there was a loud and terrible knocking at the door. The children felt their hearts stand still. They knew it could not be their own mother, for she would have turned the handle and tried to come in without any knocking at all. Oh, Turkey, whispered Blue Eyes, if it should be the new mother, what shall we do? We won't let her in whispered the turkey, for she was afraid to speak aloud. And again, there came a loud and terrible knocking at the door. What shall we do? What shall we do? cried the children in despair. Oh, go away, they called out. Go away, we won't let you in. We will never be naughty anymore. Go away, go away. But again, there came a loud and terrible knocking. She'll break the door if she knocks so hard, cried Blue Eyes. Go and put your back to it whispered the turkey, and I'll peep out of the window and try and see if it really is the new mother. So in fear and trembling, blue eyes put her back against the door, and the turkey went to the window and, pressing her face against one side of the frame, peeped out. She could just see a black satin poke bonnet with a frill round the edge and a long bony arm carrying a black leather bag. From beneath the bonnet there flashed a strange bright light and turkey's heart sank and her cheeks grew pale because she knew it was the flashing of two glass eyes she crept up to blue eyes it is it is it is she whispered her voice shaking with fear it is the new mother she's come and brought her luggage in a black leather bag that is hanging on her arm what shall we do wept blue eyes and again there was the terrible knocking Come and put your back against the door too, turkeys, cried Blue Eyes. I'm afraid it will break. So together they stood with their two little backs against the door. There was a long pause. They thought perhaps the new mother had made up her mind that there was no one at home to let her in and would go away. But presently the two children heard through the thin wooden door the new mother move a little and then say to herself, I must break open the door with my tail. <laughs> For one terrible moment all was still. 
but in it the children could almost hear her lift up her tail and then with a fearful blow the little painted door was cracked and splintered with a shriek the children darted from the spot and fled through the cottage and out at the back door into the forest beyond all night long they stayed in the darkness and the cold and all the next day and the next and all through the cold dreary days and the long dark nights that followed they are there still my children All through the long weeks and months have they been there with only green rushes for their pillows and only the brown dead leaves to cover them, feeding on the wild strawberries in the summer or on the nuts when they hang green, on the blackberries when they are no longer sour in the autumn and in the winter on the little red berries that ripen in the snow. They wander about among the tall dark firs or beneath the great tall trees beyond. Sometimes they stay to rest behind the little pool near the copse where the ferns grow thickest and they long and long with a longing that is greater than words can say to see their own dear mother again, just once again, to tell her that they'll be good forevermore, just once again. And still the new mother stays in the little cottage, but the windows are closed and the doors are shut and no one knows what the inside looks like. Now and then, when the darkness has fallen, the night is still, hand in hand, blue eyes and the turkey creep up near to the home in which they were once so happy, and with beating hearts they watch and listen. Sometimes a blinding flash comes through the window and they know it is the light from the new mother's glass eyes, or they hear a strange muffle noise and they know it is the sound of her wooden tail as she drags it along the floor. Night, night, children. And so that was James reciting somebody else's words. I mean, I I want to endorse his own words as well. We've had many of his own words on our stage, but also his 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 show that he did in Edinburgh this year was pretty much mostly his own words, and they are sublime. So yeah, who's next? I've enjoyed all of these journeys with you, but this one's a good one because it's all like, wow, I love these people so much. I would love to be her. She, she's got a certain <laughs> dynamic uh, quality. I think I've said dynamic about everybody. Whatever, they're all dynamic and awesome. She radiates power and control. You are just compelled to talk to her and be in her presence and just listen to everything she says and does because she does keep you spellbound and engaged. Lucy Ayrton. Hello. Um, hello everybody. I'm going to do a couple of poems for you tonight um, about despair, disappointment and unhappiness. I see, I normally apologise for this, but I figure you guys are my people. Um, (laughs) You've actively turned up to be bummed out, which um, from Hope's point of view is glorious. Um, So, the first poem I'm going to do is about work. Has anyone ever had a really shit job? Has anyone ever actually worked as a royal poison tester? (laughs) Okay. Well, I've worked in insurance, which is fairly similar in terms of um, hopelessness, and I wrote um, this poem about it. In corporate land, every day is the same. Every day there's a meeting and management claim that last week was a great week because of their skill, but still there's room for improvement with you, so go out and kill them. Knock them dead. Eye of the tiger, roar of the bear, yeah? 
Every day you go back and you sit at your desk with the rest of the drones and you stare at your phone like an old enemy. Every day you will sing the heartbreaking refrain, Hello corporate land, can I help? And you'll give all your tasks about 20%, even though you know full well you're meant to be giving 110. And then you'll worry all day. You'll get found out and sent to the manager's office that's full of the scent of bad coffee and lies. And you'll stare at his tie and you'll try not to cry while he tells you he's... Really disappointed, Lucy, actually. And his phone will go off just like that. Bloody managers, never done. And you'll want to say, you're... You're disappointed. When I was a little girl, I was going to be the world's first brain surgeon slash rock star. Now my job's to put lies into pie charts. I know you wonder why I come in with toothpaste down me sometimes. It's because I don't really like looking in the mirror. You're, you're disappointed. But you can't. So you smile and say sorry and aren't and think, stuff you corporate land. Because in corporate land, every day there's a fight between you in your head and the you in plain sight while one kicks and she hisses the other one kisses the ass of corporate land because in corporate land there's just so much to lose underneath you there's someone who's better than you with her freshly pressure and her nicely shone shoes and her not understanding the emotion of despair and one day she'll get you one day you'll lose or maybe you'll let her maybe you'll choose to say Fuck you, corporate land. Thank you very much. Uh, You're very kind, um, but I don't think that you're sad enough. Um, So I'm going to do my saddest poem. That's really promising, because you don't even know what it's about yet. Um, um, It's about me breaking up with someone who I really loved. Yeah, that's right. Except, obviously, I didn't love him. Like, I mean, I did still dump him, so... I've loved, I've loved people more. Um, <laughs> okay, um, yeah, um, it goes like this. I haven't told you yet. And I won't, but it's only a matter of time because I talk in my sleep. Always have. Should have said something sooner, but I've been really busy... Lately, making my own clothes and trying not to be a disappointment. I've been trying to wear skirts more and flirt less and do things that hurt less and be quieter. And prior to this conversation, I was doing fine. It's only ever a matter of time. I've always been the kind of girl who thinks a lot about what might be an acceptable level of deceit the kind of girl who feels guilty about feeling guilty about how much she eats, the kind of girl who thinks that herbal tea and tequila both taste exactly the same. (laughs) Both taste like defeat. The kind of girl who's been really busy lately doing her morning yoga and trying not to say that sometimes I want to eat less apple and more cake. Sometimes I want to take the seventh shot of Calvados and drink it down and let the frown slip off my face and drip onto the dance floor. Sometimes I want more than me. 
Sometimes I want to dance until my head spins and not push boys away when they tell me about what could be. Sometimes I want to let me be lost. And I haven't told you that, but it's only a matter of time because I talk in my sleep and I've been dreaming about dragons and towers and knights and gingerbread houses and wizards and spells. I've been dreaming about forests and dark paths and wolves. I've been dreaming about being lost and I've been not wanting to pull myself back into the day and I didn't want to say any of this to you. I've been really busy lately eating organic rice cakes and trying not to be a disappointment, but I can't. They're not real cake. (laughs) For your sake, I've been not following breadcrumb trails, but I can't not wonder where they lead. I can't stop reading fairy tales. I won't stop believing in magic. I haven't told you yet that sometime you'll need to let me be lost. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I um, I'm going to leave you with one last poem about uh, childhood unfairness. I always think those are the kind of unfairnesses that cut the very deepest. Um, did anyone else grow up in Yorkshire? No, really? We still have dragons there. It's amazing. You should definitely visit. Game of Thrones, documentary. Um, anyway, I, um, I grew up in um, Yorkshire. I think this is a northernism, but um, my mum always used to say to me whenever I said that I wanted something, I want never gets. To anyone else? Yeah. I think most families have a phrase that translates as, fuck you, kid, life's not fair. Um, and this was, this was my family's. Um, and uh, yeah, now I'm an adult, I, I wrote poem about it although I think ultimately she was right which kind of sucks um yeah um so it goes like this at school I learned to count then I learned to use a calculator so I didn't have to count anymore and then I learned to use a spreadsheet so I didn't have to use a calculator anymore and I learned that I want never gets and at school I learned to write and then I learned to type so I didn't have to write anymore and then I learned to copy and paste stuff off the internet so I didn't have to type anymore I learned that I want never gets and at school I learned to talk then I learned to shout so I didn't have to talk anymore I learned to drive so I didn't have to walk anymore I learned to use Facebook so I didn't have to stalk people in person anymore (laughs) and I learned that I want never gets but I do want I want like more time left to stop climate change or I want to stop climate change or I want to stop feeling so guilty about not really doing anything to stop climate change and I want everyone else to cycle to work as well and I want people to tell me that my legs are looking really nice (laughs) thank you I've been cycling to work And I want an end to casual office sexism. And I want when someone comes up to me and asks me if I've heard about the terrible thing that's been happening to Gaza, I want for them to mean Gaza, not Gaza. 
And I want the terrible things to stop happening to Gaza. And Gaza. And I want to properly, properly understand Israel and Palestine. Because I don't. And I want friends who don't take the piss out of me every time that comes up in conversation. And I want to stop being so frightened of ungrounded media extrapolation and on us as a society to forget about the concept of damnation. We gave up on salvation a while ago. I wanted to believe in salvation. I wanted to believe in Uncle Sam. I also wanted to not be told lies about Vietnam or Iraq or really, really want a new MacBook. (laughs) Furniture that isn't flat pack. And I want world peace. Because at school, I learnt right from wrong. Then I learnt to fit in. So I didn't need to know right from wrong anymore. And then I learnt the rules. So I didn't need to know right from wrong anymore. And now I know the law, so... I don't need to know right from wrong anymore, but I do know that I want never gets. Thank you very much, guys. Have a great evening. Yeah, so Lucy was, again, another person who I got to guest host for me in Edinburgh this year, and I love what she does as well with all of the same gushing as Liz I don't want to just repeat Liz's gushing at the end of each (laughs) track but yeah Lucy's been a great part of stand-up tragedy from very early on and I'm always engaged to be hearing anything that she says like it she electrifies you with her words so yeah I mean it's it's, it's always good to like hype them at the end because people can then can like you know if you (laughs) hype them at the beginning people don't hate that if you try and as a host, people hate it when I gush about them before they come on because they have to perform well then. I, I know how they feel. I hate it when people gush about me before uh, I come on, but it's so hard to resist it when they're so great. So who's the next person we're, we're gushing about we're today? Gushing it's about not live, so they can't complain. The, yeah, they can't complain. I don't know that they would complain, but the, the, <laughs> this is another person. But Well, all of these people I wish I could be, but uh, this, this performer manages to be both a comedian and a storyteller. And for me, this was a... This was such a personal and brilliantly funny and uh, brilliantly told story about how things can go differently than you think that they go, and particularly how memory is a bit difficult, particularly as regards sex. And this performer is just someone who, whenever she does a solo show, I'm just spellbound for an hour. And that is the amazing Bridie Lee Kennedy. Hi. Uh, My story um, is at least partly about teenage sex, so I can assure you there is no clitoral stimulation involved. Um, So this is actually a story in three parts, and each of those parts is called Justin. I was 14. He was an angel. What well, he, uh, he looked like an angel. Actually, he looked like Angel from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, played by a young, gorgeous David Boreanaz, as brooding as he was, charismatic, as cheekbony as he was, undead. And Justin looked just like him. 
I saw him across the room at a party and as, he t- as Nickelback's How You Remind Me began to spill from the speakers, he turned his dark eyes towards me and he flicked the ash from his cigarette onto the carpet because he didn't give a fuck. <laughs> he drank whiskey on the rocks. I drank vodka, neat, by which I mean from a water bottle. I stumbled towards him, cultish, in both the clumsy baby horse sense and the Charles Manson sense. I sat down next to him on the expensive leather sofa of our wealthy friend's uninterested stepmother. Uninterested stepmothers were very much in vogue with my friends. They had unlocked medicine cabinets and other places to be. I introduced myself, and he told me that he played the guitar. I mean, right up top, that's what he told me. Before his name, which I eventually learned from a mutual friend who was trying to get a Twister game going in the kitchen. Before his number, which he scrawled onto a train ticket for me before he left, ripping the pen lid off with his teeth and spitting it on the carpet next to the ash because the amount of fucks he didn't give was breathtaking. (laughs) Before anything else. I play guitar so much better than these douches. He hated Nickelback. I'd never met anyone who hated Nickelback before. This was love. It was a while ago. (laughs) This was love. One week later, I was in his bed. Actually, not his bed. The bed of his overprivileged sister in the flat she hardly used. She'd make a wonderful, uninterested stepmother someday. He was high. I had heat stroke. Pink Lloyd played on vinyl. Uh, Wish you were here, that is. He thought the wall was too commercial. (laughs) As he lay down beside me, he took my face in his hands and said, You look good, Bella. I wouldn't say my virginity was lost so much as discarded. Uh, It had been a nuisance to me as long as I'd been aware of its existence, like a health defect that he'd finally cured. Afterwards, on the bus, we spoke little and touched, not at all. He got off to meet his friends at the cinema, waving his hand in one final, tiny salute. I stayed seated, watching as the lights of Sydney bounced off the window and melted to the ground. I didn't feel different. I didn't feel ashamed. I didn't feel excited. I felt hungry, mostly, and my sunburn stung. I didn't see Justin again for five years when I was 19 and he was an angel. Well, he looked like an angel. Actually, he looked like Angel in the Buffy spin-off series, Angel, played by a slightly older, still devastating David Boreanaz, as brooding as he was, charismatic as cheekbone as he was, undead. And Justin looked just like him. I was sitting in an anthropology of performance class, studiously avoiding realising what a pointless subject that was. I'd started to study humanities because I liked history and writing and being mocked by my relatives. And also because I thought it'd be a really good way of meeting my kind of people. And I was right about that. Sitting beside me in that lecture was my boyfriend of six months, a soft-spoken academic type with a successful beard and non-specific environmental tendencies. Adam was taking notes for the both of us because my feminism stretches only as far as my laziness and so I was free to let my eyes wander the room. 
They tripped over a sleeping girl with dead daisies in her hair, a terrified-looking gay friend who had clearly just started coming down from the night before, and my vegan friend who carried Albi plays with her everywhere and had recently started to misuse the word libertarian. My people. (laughs) And then they settled on him. Justin. He wore a waistcoat with his jeans and he had no books in front of him because he didn't give a fuck. (laughs) He was already looking back at me steadily as though he'd been waiting all day for me to spot him. But then as soon as I did, he smirked, then yawned and looked away, a hat trick of dismissiveness that can only be pulled off by the truly sexy. (laughs) I waited until class ended, told Adam I'd meet him at home and then raced to the entrance of the lecture theatre. Justin finally emerged after everyone else had gone. He gave me an, I've been expecting you, eyebrow raise and said, coffee? Yeah, we could drink coffee now because we were grown-ups and we had all the grown-up addictions. Coffee. In those two syllables were five words of separate but parallel development. Coffee, graduation, adults, marriage, babies. As I mentally free associated, I nodded and followed him to the university cafe. He drank a macchiato, strong. I drank a latte, frothy. (laughs) By which I mean with soy milk. As Amy Winehouse's You Know I'm No Good began to spill from the speakers, I asked him why I hadn't seen him in my one year at university, but I didn't dare to ask him about the four preceding years. He told me he'd only just enrolled because he thought university was something he should try out. His... Education was something he should try out. I mean, I'd felt the same way about Lost, and my Thursday nights were the worst off for it. His nonchalance was like liquid sun melting down any icy reserves of cool I managed to build up. It poured from his eyes as I tried to downplay my enthusiasm for my boyfriend and my degree and my life. I looked into my coffee, wished I'd ordered it black. After an hour, he stood up, stretched, and said he had to get to an audition. He was an actor now, he explained. I'd asked him what had happened to music, and he said he still played, but the scene... (laughs) I waited for him to finish that sentence, and he never did. He just bent down and picked up his leather backpack. He kissed me on both cheeks, then held my face in his hands and said, You look the same, Bella. So do you, Angel <clears throat> Justin. <laughs> he strode out of the cafe, and I licked the soy foam from the inside of my cup and then turned my phone over so I wouldn't have to see the text from Adam that had just arrived. I didn't see Justin again for five years. When I was 24. And he was an angel. Well, he looked like an angel. Actually, he didn't. He looked like an FBI special agent, specifically FBI special agent Seely Booth from the Police Procedural Bones, played by an older, kind of worn David Boreanaz, like if you took Angel out on a 10-year bender, then dropped him off at a crime scene and asked him to quip. <laughs> and Justin looked just like him. I saw him across a crowded beer garden on a sunny afternoon, and as Gauthier's somebody that I used to know began to spill from the speakers, it was so overplayed by this point that even I couldn't find significance in that, he turned his dark eyes towards me and smiled. 
jumped up, ran over to my table and threw his arms around me. Oh my God, Bridie, this is a beautiful surprise. A beautiful surprise. I was a beautiful surprise to this familiar stranger and I hugged him back hard. He sat down and we caught up. He drank a cider, pear. I drank a cider, girly, by which I mean recorder leg. He told me he was a writer now and was actually doing his master's in literature. I told him I was a comedian and he said that made sense because I'd always made him laugh, which I didn't remember. After a couple of hours, the sun was starting to go down and he told me that he lived nearby. I was sweaty and moderate drunk and I just texted my best friend from the bathroom saying, oh my God, I am having a drink with the guy I lost my virginity to 10 years ago, almost to the day. And she'd responded, Bridie, your life is not a Richard Curtis movie. Get out. (laughs) So I'd turn my phone off because she clearly wasn't thinking straight. (laughs) I told him that I'd love to see his place. And so we left, walked the melting Sydney streets together, close enough that the tips of the hairs on my left arm brushed the tips of the hairs on his right. We talked about music and cliff faces and why everyone was eating frozen yogurt now when ice cream already exists, and this was love. We sat down in his backyard, and he lit a cigarette, his first of the day. I watched him ash carefully into the mangled clay ashtray that his six-year-old niece had made him. She was perfect, apparently, and his sister was just in love. She'd traded in the underused flat for a nice house in the country with her husband and her little girl, and he said she'd never been happier. He chatted away about his niece's swimming lessons and her little braids, and I let his words run together as I watched the smoke drift from his lips. Bridie... I am so sorry. Well, that penetrated. I don't know if this is a good time to bring this up or or when a good time really would be, but look, I know it's ancient history. It's just that night when we were kids, I I should have called. It's just I was embarrassed and and you were so nice. And look, I just want to say I'm sorry. I wish I'd said it earlier and... Remember that time I ran into you at uni? Well, I was going to say it then, but you seemed so happy. You had your degree and your boyfriend, your whole life together. Like, what would an apology from me even mean? And I asked if I could kiss him. And he asked if I remembered how. And I did. And in that kiss was... 10 years of separate but parallel development. It tasted like a memory and it tasted like hope. It felt like my teenage years and it felt like right now. Every mistake I'd made in the last five years, the last 10, the last 24 didn't matter because they brought me back here again and again and again. And now for the last time, I was home. My 14-year-old self had seen where I belonged and She'd planted a flag there, base camp, and I'd finally found it again. I could light a tiny fire, build a little house, maybe learn to knit. (laughs) We went to bed, 
And afterwards, I lay with my head on his chest for half an hour listening to his raspy breath. He really should quit smoking, I thought, but we could talk about that in the morning. He turned towards me, took my face in his hands and said, You look perfect, Bella. I'm so glad we finally did this. Me too. Well, (laughs) technically did this again. (laughs) He looked confused. No, I mean, I'm glad we finally did... this. It was my turn to be confused. Yeah, I I know, I mean, did this again. You're, You're glad we did this again. He looked even more confused and started to shift away from me. Uh, no, um, uh, I don't want to be crude, um, but I mean, I'm glad we finally had sex. I shifted away too. Our hips disconnected and the sheet fell away. Uh, not to be a stickler, Justin, but um, we've already had sex. N- no, Bridie, we, we haven't. <laughs> yes, we have. Remember, I, I was 14, I, I came over. Brady, we, we didn't have sex that night. <laughs> Justin, I think I'd remember, I lost my virginity to you 10 years ago, almost to the day. N- no, Brady, you didn't. You came over that night and we... We tried... <clears throat> There was some, um, but I didn't, we did, I couldn't get it in. I grabbed the pillow to shield myself. Yes, you, you could, you, you did. No, Brady, I, I didn't. But what does it matter? We've done it now. And and it was great. You know, I feel kind of relieved. I always felt so embarrassed about that night because, you know, you try to do... I sank back into the pillow and tried to tune him out. I'd been telling this story for 10 years and it wasn't even true. (laughs) That means the guy I lost my virginity to was the next one. What the fuck was his name? (laughs) I want to say... Tom... God, he was insignificant. This guy, the one beside me, or at least his past selves, which I had apparently invented, was the significant one. The one that got away. Not the one who couldn't get it in. (laughs) Bridie, I I know this is quick, but I really feel like we might have something here, you know? Hey, in another sense, this has been ten years coming, right? Right? No, it was ten years coming with some other guy, some beautiful, diffident, undead guy who didn't give a fuck. This was all wrong. This was broken. But I smiled and said, yeah, you might be right. Let's go to sleep, hey? I waited until he was snoring and I slid out of bed. I gathered up my clothes, dressed as quickly as I could, and then, finding his front door deadlocked, I opened his bedroom window, slid through it, and sprinted into the night. (laughs) As I waited to hail a cab, one thought emerged and started to bang itself against the front of my head. (sighs) Well, I have got to leave Sydney. (laughs) And I did. One month later, 
I bought a one-way ticket and I flew to London. And I haven't seen Justin since. Thank you. So yeah, there's Bridie Lee Kennedy again. I'm very much a fan boy of Bridie Lee Kennedy. Also, I love her storytelling. Like, I'm also very jealous of her uh, ability to tell stories so clearly and crisply and well. And like, she's got a very different energy to the what my performance energy yeah. is. So I can't really be that jealous. And it's like being it's like a, a banana being jealous of an apricot. But <laughs> but, uh, but I don't know why I chose those particular. Uh, fruits, but never you mind. The apricot or you the banana? Dad? I don't know. I think I guess in that I'm the banana, but I don't really relate to bananas. So. I'm a banana. Anyway, Bridie Lee Kennedy is amazing and you should totally check out what she does. She also does journalism. She also does a lot of podcasts. So check out what she does. And so who's next? Ooh. So um, we actually created an award in Edinburgh for this person. And actually, uh, James, who you've heard earlier, was the recipient this right. last Right, James Mackay won it this year. <clears throat> but but who, was the, who was the award named after? It was created for this man who... Uh, was our flyering buddy our second year in Edinburgh when we were at the Banshee the first time but was a person who came in whenever we needed it and came in with a with a great energy and enthusiasm and and beautiful beautiful words and his show like many of these performers I think we saw his show more than once Mm. and he was in a very difficult slot but I don't know he could hold anybody uh, he's a, a storyteller that's sometimes they're traditional stories, sometimes they're more modern stories. He he manages to mix both really, really, really beautifully. And um, the story that he's going to tell now, I, I think he did specifically for us for Tragic Horror. And oh my God, it blew me away. And he blows me away every single time because he was such a great team player, jumped in, came and helped out. He won the Stand Up Tragedy Award for... Well, it was just him. being a member of our family. Being really. a member of our family. and that An is... honorary member of Stand Up Tragedy. I mean, the award is, is a, a t-shirt. A t- it's a t-shirt. It's a t-shirt. <laughs> but it's also our love and devotion. So one of my favourite sons, Tim Rouse. Thank you, Dave. Um, well, it's quite... It was Earlier on, it had that sort of lovely, sort of horrific, tragic, greeny, blue, under sea kind of feel. And now it's this sort of warm kind of inside a pumpkin pink. And it, and it doesn't feel very tragic to me because this is one of my favourite nights of the year. This is the night where you get to sleep for an extra hour. <laughs> yeah, I just want to let that ripple around the room. Let's, let's put aside that moment of joy. 750 years ago, or thereabouts, in Japan, there was a great massacre. And the Heike clan were all but obliterated by the Minamoto. Their samurai's ships were tossed into the water, burned, and a lot of people drowned. And then, as the Minamoto warriors got to the shores of where there is now a town called Bakan, the survivors of the Heike clan, the women uh, and the children, went to the sides of the cliffs and just threw themselves into the water, their bodies bouncing off the rocks to get washed out on the tides to join their menfolk. And for a long time thereafter, the straits around Bakan were considered haunted and evil. If you looked at the crabs, those scuttling crustaceans would have the faces of the dead Heike samurai on their backs. And in amongst the waves and on the sand of the shore, you would see these glowing blue orbs, the onibai, the demon lights, the witch lights, 
that would slip out into the waters. And swimmers would talk of feeling strange hands grab them, try and pull them down. Even sailors would talk about how their ships, it felt like something was tipping and rocking them. And less than a century had passed before the monks built a great temple, an enormous shrine. And down on the beach, they built a sort of mausoleum, a memorial, not a cemetery, because there were no bodies to bury. But they erected monuments, listed the names of every Heike family they could find on them, and they performed ceremony after ceremony until the ghosts mostly fell quiet. Mostly. There was a time... When living in the shrine with the monks, there was a biwa player. The biwa is a, sort of a, a lute. You play it with a little flint plectrum. Uh, if you can't imagine a sort of four-stringed lute, just picture Dave hammering away, and that'll be enough of a vibe. The biwa player was a man called Huichi, and Huichi was blind. That was why he lived in the monastery. And when the monks weren't out performing their duties in the town or attending to their prayers and their meditations, they would often sit and listen to him play, listen to him recite wondrous, epic poems. One hot summer's night, when all of the monks were out in the town visiting sick parishioners, Hoichi was sitting. It was too hot to be inside, so he sat on the veranda and he practised sightlessly. And through the night, he heard someone coming, the clanking of marching feet, someone wearing armour, and someone walked all the way through up to him on the veranda and barked out, Hoichi! And he thought, this must be some samurai, someone who is used to being obeyed. So he said, Hi, I am here with my august master who is travelling through these parts and has heard that you are a great reciter. He wants you to come and entertain his court tonight. Well, Hoichi didn't want to turn down such an instruction like that. He started to get to his feet, and the samurai gripped him with fingers of steely strength and began to lead him, first at a walk, but then at a run through the streets of the town of Bakan, leading him this way and that, until the poor blind Biwa player had no sense of where he was or where he was going. At last, he came to a great gate. He heard it creaking open, and inside... He heard the rustle of the silk that everyone was wearing. He heard the murmuring talk of the court. He thought, this room must be filled with people. And he knelt down. And he waited for the Lord that was there who commanded him to tell the story of the Heike clan. And he said, that story in full, it will take many nights to tell. Would you like me to just tell a part? And the Lord said, start at the start. And if you are good, you can come back here night after night, and at the end, you will be well rewarded. So, Hoichi began to play. And at his finger stroke, where the strings of his biwa were, the straining rigging of the ships on the sea, the plectrum plucked those strings, and it was swords meeting. He began to recite the epic histories. And when he came to the end, he foreshadowed the demise of the clan when he spoke of the last emperor, the infant emperor of the Heike, whose own mother had carried him up in her arms, walked into the side of the cliff and jumped off into the water. As he said those words, it was as if the court fell about in madness. There was such a sound of weeping, of sadness, and Hoichi was so convinced he must have offended someone that he thought about running away. But at last they fell quiet. 
And he heard a tremble in the Lord's voice as they said, We had heard of your reputation, Hoichi, but you are far finer than any words could say. Come back to us. Three more nights. And at the end of that, we will reward you with more money than you can spend in the rest of your life. That was great. A recurring gig with a good fee at the end of it. In the current climate, Hoichi was amazing. The samurai led him back by that meandering. It's nice to see who's laughing at that and who's like... The samurai led him back to the monastery. He got home before the rest of the monks came in. The next day he slept. And the next evening he slipped away again. But on that second night, his disappearance was noticed by the monks. And on the third night, they followed him. But he ran so quickly through the streets, the monks that were following him, they lost him. And they did not see him being led by some steel-fingered samurai. They just saw that blind musician, arms in front of him, running of his own accord, taking weird turns and twists. Through the hour of the rat, that long hour between midnight and two o'clock, the old Japanese calendar was only a 12-hour day, they searched for Hochi, and at last they went to the cliff top that looked down onto that cemetery shrine, and they saw it blazing with light. Every onibi, every demon light, every witch orb seemed to have gathered there on the shore, and there was Hochi kneeling in amongst the memorial stones playing, singing the songs of the Heiki clan while all the ghosts of the dead were around him, listening. The monks did not have the courage to interrupt his playing. They waited until he was making his way home before they grabbed him, and when they touched him, he went into a sudden shock. They had to carry him home. The next day, they washed his face with water. He regained consciousness, and they asked him what he remembered. He spoke about the, the door, the arch that he passed through, the, the sound of the rustling silks, the, the sound of the murmur of the court. They said, Hoichi, it is ghosts that you have been playing to. The gate is the old iron gate of the cemetery. The rustling of their silk is just the play of the waves lapping on the shore, and their murmuring is the cry of the gulls as they fly away from that accursed place. Hoji said, what shall I do? They're going to get me to play again for them tonight. They promised me more money than I'd be able to spend in the rest of my life. Hoji, more money than you'll be able to spend in the rest of your life, because when you finish telling their history, they're going to tear you apart. Is there anything I can do? One thing, said the abbot. And he laid Hoichi down, he unwrapped his robes, and they began to write prayers. Tickling brush strokes in ink, they wrote of all of the many paths to Nirvana, all of the many ways of formless, until Hoichi's body was a map of the Dharma. Each and every part, they even shaved his head to write on the shape of his skull. And when they thought that his entire body was covered over with the holy words, they said, Hoichi, Tonight, go to the veranda, kneel there. They will come for you, and if you are silent, if you are still, they will surely not be able to find you. So Hoichi went, and he knelt with his biwa on his lap, as if he was meditating. And eventually, he heard that clanking march of that form coming for him. 
and he heard the voice cry out his name, Hoichi, Biwa player, where are you? Where are you? I see no musician, but I see a pair of ears. Because the monks had rushed. They had forgotten to write the words of the holy text on Huichi's ears. Well, my lord commanded I bring back all of you. Perhaps this will appease him. And then Huichi felt the clamp, the strong steel fingers on his ears. And the pain was bad. But the sound was somehow more horrible as his ears were pulled off. But he managed to stay kneeling, still and silent. And the next morning, the monks came. They tended to the wound, still oozing blood. And little by little, Hoichi recovered. And maybe that horrible night was the making of him. Because while he was still unable to travel all through Japan, when the story of Hoichi the Eris spread, folks came and they listened to him. Thank you. Wow, one of your favourite sons, Tim Ralph there. <laughs> Did, Anything is James, else, is, is James also your son? If James is anything, he's definitely, you know, like, I don't know. He's like the godfather. He's, he's, he's more like the godfather of stand-up tragedy. He's kind of like an, a, a, an uncle that, 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 that takes you in magical, magical places, ma- takes you to magical places. I don't know if that is comfortable that plus as a sentence. Yeah, James is really going to be. Yeah. So who is next in our, in our, yeah, in our gush fest? Well, this, this is the final performer that I picked. I don't really know what to say about this performer, except... Uh, she hosted in Edinburgh and I said afterwards that uh, frankly I think that I might be becoming this person in a lot of ways in a lot of positive ways and other more complex ways but this is someone that has been with us for the entire Edinburgh journey in one way or another um, because she was performing near the venue we were at in the middle of nowhere we were at the Fiddler's Elbow and then last year she was hosting mega games and we kept going back and forth because that was like this amazing moment for performers in Edinburgh uh, mega games, you should check it out. I don't know how do you explain mega games to other people who aren't in Edinburgh. It's, it's a very strange thing yeah. that gives people a lot of joy. Gives people a lot of joy, which is actually one way to describe this performer. Yeah, she's unusual, but she gives you so much joy. And she hosted Stand Up Tragedy one night uh, this year, but for this performance that she did for us, um, it was for Tragic Heroes. And it, it breaks my heart. I mean, that I, I don't... Do I want to say what the... No, I'm not just even going to tell you happen. anything about who this person is. Because you really need to just go to see this performer to really get her. And that is Miss Samantha Mann. Put your hands together for Samantha Mann, everybody! I was, I was actually hoping that I would be able to go up into the corridor and come in to the back and then, and then make an entrance and nobody would see me arrive and I would just sort of arrive and, just, and then I realised I was in another door in the middle and I was really awkward. Sorry, that's a little story of me coming to the... Don't look at my hair too much, by the way. I had it done today. And I said, I'm rather brave, I suppose, but I thought I might look 
And my parents didn't ask me much more because I think they would have eaten an excuse to get rid of her. It's absolutely useless. So she disappeared. You know, but I would never have been able to deal with it quite in the way that he did. And he was, he was awful a lot more alive than, than I was. And that was something that I, think that I always admired and I, and I wanted. And it's something that, that I miss um, since he's not here anymore. And, and um, I have been trying to come out of my shell a little bit, which is why I'm been starting to do a, I put together a show, we probably don't believe it, but I have, I put together a whole hour. Um, I mean, I don't want to oversell it, it's not, I mean, do want to sell it, it's not many people came last year, but um, I've been trying to say, well, perhaps, you know, with this, because he was so, he was so lively, and he was so, you know, sort of, when I mean, this is what I'm doing, he was just old enough to, to get AIDS before anybody knew what it was, and, um, you know, it was all jolly quick, um, but um, I think, you know, in a way, he, he, grasped life in a way that I haven't done, and, and, and certainly not since, since, you know, I think I shrank back into my shell a little bit. So I, I wrote a, a poem, and it's not, oh my god, I feel like but I, I think I, I'm going to read it, and it's, it's not a lot more serious than most of my poetry, but um, I'll, just, I'll read it, then I'll go, and then you'll, and then you don't have to react in any way, you just sort of. Get on with what? Oh, I, I just read it, and then we, and you, and I'll go. And then we'll it's called "Who Goes There," or "Hugo Said," depending on how you want to pronounce it. Rather um, than, <laughs> um, I was going to call it um, "The Short Road to Heaven," but I thought that was a little bit mawkish, um, and I don't believe in heaven anyway. Um, I like to think Hugo sees it as recycling around the world <laughs> in the way that perhaps we're all breathing him in right now. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would be awful, wouldn't it? Um, to get that, doesn't matter. Um, here we go, so, um, who goes there? Who goes there? Who goes there? Who goes there? Who's that up ahead? The mist blurs your face, masks your scars, hides your haste. But I feel your impatience, brother mine, I feel the waste. You flashed ahead of me like a flare and lit up my life. So who goes there? Who's that up ahead? Where's the fun that you found? Where the mischief you chased, hunted down underground, wrinkled out, put your hand on, before you turn around and say, Come, Sam, drink your share. Who goes there? Who's that up ahead with his feet in the clouds and his face in the air? You picked up your life in both hands and said, look how distant. Then it picked you. And it sucked your blood and left you shriveled. Is it what you would have wanted? I was too slow to ask, but don't think I didn't care. Who goes there? Let's find the fun, you said. And I'm looking, I've started looking. But it's hard, you go. So who goes? You go, you go first. And make it fun for when I come. That's it. So that was Samantha Mann. I had the pleasure of interviewing her for my my other podcast, Getting Better Acquainted, in Edinburgh this year. That's one of my favourite hours of my life in many ways. 
you show you should check that out as well and everything she does and and also what her uh her creative partner uh adrian gillard uh does as well <laughs> you should check that out i mean samantha is a real character and uh adrian keeps her on the straight and narrow i think so <laughs> who's also an amazing performer who you don't get to see as much no but when he performs he is Excellent. I think I think you can hear him perform at Tragedy Fails Better, one of our other mashups. Yeah, that. and that's basically worth listening to to get the kind of complicated in joke that's happening all around you at this moment in time. So yes, this is the last of the three stand-up tragedy specials that you've kind of selected the tracks for, yeah. Liz. This may be the last time stand-up tragedy's hearing me having me around I don't think that's the case and certainly that's it's not the last time me and you are going to see each other because well, we're going to be friends whether you come back to stand up tragedy or not unless some tragedy befalls us and you know knock, you've, knock wood touch wood touch wood so yeah I mean it's been great having you as part of stand up tragedy and you have kept the times uh, which is you always think of as a very unimportant job but it's the most important job <laughs> in Edinburgh, right? I mean, maybe in London we can sometimes roll with stuff. In in London we can go, oh, right, okay, that's going over a bit. We'll cut a bit of the break. That's easy for anyone to do. But in, in Edinburgh, everything's got to be on point. And we, as a show, I don't think we've... Maybe we've overrun a couple of times, but they've never been your fault. And we've, we've rarely, never rarely, rarely overrun. Because um, we take that stuff really seriously, uh, being on time. I do um, myself. Um, and so it's been great having somebody who would keep it on time. Because mm. I'm very particular about timings. But in my life, uh, that's that's the case. I can keep all that together. But when I'm hosting, that's a different thing. It's a whole and different I, I, I am my own worst enemy in that. <laughs> so it's been good to have you there to stop my myself from derailing my own show. Well, for me, it's been a very important part of, well my life but also my development living in London because here's a little bit of backstory about Liz for years I did I performed in the theatre I I was an actor and worked in community theatres and did tech and did every number of things while I was growing up and then at university I I ran a student theatre and then I moved to New York and was doing fundraising in the arts there but then once I moved to London I moved here for to focus on my academic side to focus on my policy side and I sort of lost that for a while until Dave came and approached me with this project and then for the last four years it's been a <laughs> it's been a rudder keeping me on the keeping that part of me uh in in touch keep keeping that part of me part of part of the Liz ship how what am I trying to say here keep keeping it keeping all the Liz bits together what, what am I trying to say cut. I like it <laughs> I like it I'm, I'm enjoying what you're saying I don't want to cut it it's funny but um, you're saying keeping all the whole making sure that all I, of the parts of you are there right are there. so you, you you wouldn't have been looking at your creative side because you no. would have been purely looking at your kind of policy side and now you've got something we've had both lost. those things together yeah. but at this point you know the policy side does need to be focused <clears> on and so that is why this step away from the mic is but I'm for one I'm absolutely looking forward to Liz's uh, solo show when it <laughs> when it comes together and uh, it will be great. I mean, by now there'll have been her uh, a couple of her performances, a few of her performances that have gone out on the podcast, so you can listen back and judge for yourselves. But you know, pressurized Liz to to, to do a solo show. I think that's that's the way forward. <laughs> 
Oh God, audience, oh God. But um, yeah, I mean, and how can people find you, Liz, and stuff like that if they would like to, 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 to pressurise you to do a solo show? So in the future times, whilst I am beginning to focus more in on my academic career, I am going to be more on the social medias. Um, I don't have a blog or a website currently that may, may come in the future, but I, will, I am on Twitter and I will be being more active. And if you want to hear some of my thoughts about policy but also you know I'm, I'm quite interested in the arts and I will be keeping engaging with that and keeping my my eye on what Dave's doing and pushing you towards that so if, if you want to follow me on Twitter uh, I'm very Tass Gray uh, and I'm also on LinkedIn which I'm told is not cool but <laughs> it ain't cool it is cool <laughs> you, you can also find me on LinkedIn if you want to know more about me <laughs> and academically it's cool I mean so this has been the third of your specials with stand-up tragedy you will always be special to stand-up tragedy um and yeah i don't think there's anything to plug at this point i don't know what shows to plug so check out stand-up tragedy's website for future stuff like that www.standuptragedy.co.uk we're at stand up for tragedy on twitter that's the number four because somebody got there first Uh, you can make friends with the tragedy on facebook and yeah you should say the tragedy's I was over for this say, one. Should I? Um, and now the tragedy is over. Dry your eyes, it's time to go. There's going to be some other changes to Stand Up Tragedy, as well as Liz's departure. And those will be talked about, I guess, in the next episode, which will be in two weeks' time where somebody else from the stand-up tragedy team will be giving their picks. Spoiler alert, it's our sound engineer, Harv.
This podcast has been produced by me with sound production from Stephen Harvey with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and The Reactionary.